Good morning, church. Uh, today's reading comes from Isaiah chapter 8, verses 11 to chapter 9, verses 7. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. As your word is read out, may you open our eyes to receive them and help us to understand so that we may be equipped for every good work through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. This is what the Lord says to me with his strong hand upon me, warning me not to follow the way of this people. Do not call conspiracy everything this people calls a conspiracy. Do not fear what they fear, and do not dread it. The Lord Almighty is the one you are to regard as holy. He is the one you are to fear. He is the one you are to dread. He will be a holy place. For both Israel and Judah, he will be a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And for the people of Jerusalem, he will be a trap and a snare. Many of them will stumble. They will fall and be broken. They will be snared and captured. Bind up this testimony of warning and seal up God's instruction among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the descendants of Jacob. I will put my trust in him. Here I am and the children the Lord has given me. We are signs and symbols in Israel from the Lord Almighty who dwells on Mount Zion. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? Consult God's instructions and the testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. Distressed and hungry, they will roam through the land. When they are famished, they will become enraged, and looking upward will curse their king and their God. Then they will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and fearful gloom, and they will be thrust into utter darkness. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walked in dark, walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. He have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Median's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of the oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone, and uh, good morning to those who are at home on Zoom. Uh, I'm continuing in my series on Isaiah, so uh, today we're focusing on Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11 to 9, verse 7. Now, we live 
in darkening times. We can sense that the society of today is quite different from that, you know, 10 years ago or even two years ago before the pandemic. People are much more polarised into camps, listening only to people in their own camps and their own echo chambers. There's a loss of common ground, there's a loss of common human decency. The authorities and institutions that were well respected in the past have basically now become viewed with suspicion. The relative peace that we've seen in the world uh, since the Second World War now seems to be increasingly threatened. We are in a new Cold War, we are told, and the sudden outbreak of war does not seem a distant, uh, you know, pos- it, it seems quite a possibility now. And also as Christians, we feel that the freedoms that we once took for granted to live according to the teachings of the Bible are now increasingly being removed from us. We live in darkening times. Now, it's easy for us to be disturbed by all of this, to have a sense of foreboding and angst, to be helpless, to feel worried, uh, especially for our children who have to grow up in this world. In today's passage, Isaiah is speaking to the nation of Judah. And you know what? They lived in dark times too. Now, let me give you some historical background into those times. So we didn't, I didn't cover chapters 7 uh, to 8, uh, or first part of 8, but basically in those chapters, Isaiah speaks to King Ahaz of Judah. Uh, he's being threatened by the king of Israel. So this is a map of uh, the geography of that time. So the southern kingdom of Judah northern kingdom of Israel and neighboring country of Syria. The king of Israel and the king of Syria were plotting, were conspiring together to come and invade Judah and topple the king, King Ahaz. And so Isaiah went to meet King Ahaz to tell him to remain steadfast, to trust in God because God would deliver Judah. But Ahaz displeased God by showing that he did not have faith in God. He turned down God's offer of a sign. He would rather trust in his own human schemes. And so God told Ahaz that within a short span of time, the kingdoms of Israel and Syria both would be wiped out by a greater king, the king of Assyria. Whoops. Okay, I thought I had a map in here, but it's... Not there, so sorry. I just wanted to show you where Assyria, Assyria from the north, okay, or the northeast. Assyria was at that time growing in power in the region, and they had a very formidable army that was known for their great cruelty. So maybe you could imagine living in Judah at that time. I suppose it's a bit like living in Ukraine at the moment, okay? There's a sense of something's going to happen very soon. All right, the expectation that at any moment, Russian troops are going to cross the border and come in, take over, bomb our cities, kill our people. And that apparently can happen before the end of this Winter Olympics. Now imagine being a frazzled, fearful citizen living in Judah at that time, in King Ahaz's time. And this is the situation that Isaiah speaks to in today's passage. Verse 11. For the Lord thus spoke to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, 
do not call conspiracy all that these people call conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. Now, this is by, from the ESV. It's a bit different from uh, the other passage that we read, but it means the same thing. Now, God called Isaiah not to walk in the way of the people of Judah, which means by and large that the people of Judah had put their trust not in God, but in human schemes and devices. They were fearful. They were in dread. They saw conspiracy everywhere. Now, we're not exactly sure what is meant here by conspiracy, uh, and the word translated conspiracy could also mean treason. So maybe it's saying, do not call treason all that these people calls treason. But, you know, we just don't have the historical details to understand exactly what the conspiracy or the treason was. But it's clear to us from this passage that when people are faced with political upheaval, with challenging situations, it's so easy to become paranoid, to become fearful, and look for human solutions. And the gist here is very clear. God is saying to Isaiah, don't go along with what the majority are doing and don't be frightened of what they fear. Now, God's people are often called to be countercultural, to swim against the tide, to walk the narrow path. And today we face pressure to follow the mainstream narrative or we risk being held down, we risk being panned by social media, we risk being cancelled, or perhaps lose our job. There could be worse to come. But God says, it's okay to stand against the crowd. Don't be tempted to give an inch, or join them. And don't be afraid. Why? Because... There is someone who is more fearsome, someone who is more worthy of dread. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honour as holy. Let him be your fear and your dread. Our fear of God is not a revulsion or a loathing, but it's a deep awe and reverence. He's a holy God, meaning that he's high and lifted up, far from what is common and ordinary. He should be the most significant consideration in our lives. As it says in the New Testament, Jesus said, Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Or in Hebrews, Let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. God is a fearsome God. So don't just... Uh, look around you at the dark things that are happening in the world. Look up and see the Lord God Almighty seated on his throne in heaven, who holds all things in his hands, who controls everything that happens in history. Don't be anxious or worried or frazzled, but rest your heart and your soul in God's sovereignty. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken, they shall be snared and taken. There are only two trajectories for people. There are only two ways to live. 
It was true in Isaiah's time, and it's true in our day. Your response to God determines whether God is your sanctuary or your stumbling stone, whether he's your saviour or your enemy. Those who reject the world's ways and continue to put their trust in God will find that God is their safety, their protection, their shelter from the storm. But those who abandon their trust in God in order to side with the world in the hope that the world's ways will protect them will find God a stone of offence and a rock of stumbling. And just like the inhabitants of Jerusalem uh, and those citizens of both houses of Israel, the northern and the southern kingdoms, they will stumble. They will be trapped. They'll be snared. They'll be broken. They'll be taken away in captivity. Now. Okay. That's not where I want it to be. I'm not sure what I'm doing. Okay, I'm going to go. That's where I want. Yeah, verse 16. Okay. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. So bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. Could be something that God is telling Isaiah, or it could be Isaiah speaking to his disciples, but either way, the effect is the same. God's disciples, that is those remnant of God who are still faithful to God, should bind up the testimony and seal the teaching. Now, what does that mean? I think that the testimony and the teaching refers to God's words which have been spoken to Isaiah and which have been written down by Isaiah as a written oracle. And the scroll of God's words should be bound up and sealed. In other words, finalized, confirmed to be God's word, uh, safeguarded from any tampering, any addition, any subtraction, and preserved for the future. Even if the generation in Isaiah's day did not believe Isaiah spoke God's words, these words are to be preserved and kept for a future generation. God's words will always prove to be true. Generations come, Generations go, each one with their own specific struggles against evil worldviews and practices and beliefs. But only God's word remains unchanging and speaks to each generation with the same truth and the same relevance. Now, Isaiah says here that God is hiding his face from the house of Jacob. A few months ago, I was preaching on Isaiah chapter 6, and we saw there that God would bring severe judgment on Judah. God had withdrawn his favor from the whole nation. But in his grace, God would preserve a, a small remnant, a minority of the nation to be faithful to him. And Isaiah and his disciples, his children, were among this remnant. Isaiah says, no matter what the rest of Israel does, I will not follow them. Instead, I will wait for the Lord. I will hope in Him. Now, there are times in history when God appears to be hiding His face. I think of the absolute devastation during the two world wars, the millions killed. Sometimes in history, we see God abandoning 
a nation or a society to the consequences of its sinful choices. God keeps silent. He remains detached. Where is God, you may ask, when things are going pear-shaped? Can't you see, God, that what is happening in our world? Can't you see? How could you let this keep happening? When God appears to be absent, we are tempted to stop trusting in God. You know, you may complain to God, I believe in you, God, but you're not answering my prayers. You're not doing anything about the problem. Well, the world may be going from bad to worse, but you know what Isaiah is saying? When times are dark and when God appears to be in hiding, that is exactly when you need to cling to God. Because the true believer walks by faith and not by sight. The very definition of faith, according to the book of Hebrews, is that being, you are being certain of something that you cannot see. You need to know that God never abandons His people. He calls you to hope in Him, to trust in Him, and to wait for Him. Now, Christians may well have to face increasing persecution in the years to come, but don't give up your hope, whatever happens. As it says in Hebrews, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. Now, verse 18 here, Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell on Mount Zion. Now, the very presence of people who remain faithful to God are signs from God to the unbelieving world. Those who stand on God's side against evil, who refuse to conform to the world or buckle under pressure, they are signs that God's judgment is coming on the godless and the wicked. Now, it says here in this passage in 1 Peter, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So in this passage, Peter tells us that the sufferings of Christians are merely the beginning stage of God's judgment on the world. Christians are judged in order to be purified from sin and they will be saved, it says. Now, we get the mild end of the stick, so to speak. If even the righteous have to suffer, how much worse will it be for those who reject God? Because our suffering leads to salvation. But their suffering, their judgment will lead to eternal punishment. The suffering of God's people is there as a sign to the unbelieving world. Now back to Isaiah, verse 19. And when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? Now we get some detail here about exactly what kind of thing the unbelieving people of Judah were turning to in all their anxiety about their political events. They were turning to the occult, they were turning to consult mediums and spiritists rather than turn to God's word. They would try and contact the 
the spirits of the dead for advice instead of inquiring of God. Now, G.K. Chesterton had a famous line. When men stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing, they believe in anything. And here the people of Judah who stopped believing in God were believing in the occult. And Isaiah says, how ridiculous. Why would you consult the dead on behalf of the living? Because in the Old Testament, the dead have no special powers. They have no knowledge or wisdom out of the ordinary. They are, in fact, weaker than the living. Only in a few chapters from this chapter, in chapter 14, the king of Babylon is taunted after he dies. He used to be a powerful king, but after he dies, he becomes a weak, helpless shadow, just like all the other dead. Why consult the dead? Why not consult God instead? So Isaiah says, to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. We should go to the teaching and the testimony that is God's word. We have all the guidance that we need in God's revealed word, the scriptures. Those who refuse to turn to God's word have no dawn. They remain in darkness. Now listen to this vivid description of what will happen to these people in darkness. Verse 21. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry, and when they are hungry, they will be enraged and speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward, and they will look to the earth, but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. This is a picture of the people of Judah going into captivity. The siege of Jerusalem would have been a terrible time of famine and death. Those who survived were marched into captivity, passing through the land in their distress and their hunger. And you might think that after experiencing God's judgment, uh, they might perhaps repent and turn back to God, but instead it has the opposite effect on them. It makes them enraged against God and their king. They turn their faces upward in defiance and in contempt. They shake their fists at God. And that is a natural instinct of sinners, to ignore God when things are going well and to curse God when things are going badly, as though God owes it to them to make their life smooth and easy. It doesn't occur to sinners that the reason why things are going badly is because of their sin. And so they are thrust into the thick darkness eternally. But darkness is not God's last word. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now, Israel will pass through the darkness of invasion and exile, but that is not the end of Israel. God, in his grace, will make sure that it doesn't end in darkness and gloom. So Israel, uh, Isaiah here prophesies that in some latter time ahead of him, a great light will arise in Israel. And this light would be made manifest in the region of Galilee. Now, this is a map of... Um, 
um, the tribal um, allotments in the nation of Israel. So you can see here that around the Sea of Galilee, these northernmost tribes were Naphtali and Zebulun here, okay? So that is the area which is called Galilee. And so uh, the area between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, that's the land that God gave to these two tribes. And it had always been a very multicultural part of Israel, where Israel lived among many other different racial groups. And by the way, the Assyrians came from the north and conquered Israel, and the first part of Israel to fall to Assyria was this, uh, this region of Galilee. So it was um, even after, after that invasion, a lot of these people were deported and the Assyrians brought in foreigners to live in that area. So it was even more Gentile. Okay? So it became known as Galilee of the Gentiles or of the nations. And Jews would look down on that region of Galilee because it, there was nothing to be proud of coming from Galilee. It was held in contempt. But God would choose to shine his light there and bring honor to that land. He's going to make glorious that land beside the sea and beyond the Jordan. Now notice how in Isaiah, the past tense uh, is used to describe things that were in the future for Isaiah. Strictly speaking, we call it the perfect tense. Okay, So we call it the prophetic perfect. It just shows how certain these predictions are. So when it says, um, you know, the the people who walked in darkness on in the past tense, it's referring to something in the future. And those who dwell in the land of deep darkness would see this great light shine. Verse 3. You have multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. So there's going to be great rejoicing in Israel because God will deliver Israel from their oppressors. He'll break the yoke over their shoulders and the staff used to beat them. He will completely eliminate war. So what is this great light that will shine on Galilee? What is the reason for this great rejoicing? Who will bring God's great deliverance? The answer is a child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. So this is, this is a son who will be born to us or for us, meaning for our benefit. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. So he'll be a ruler or a king. The responsibility of government will fall on his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And here is where we find that he's no ordinary child. He's given four exalted names that befit God rather than a mere man. The word wonderful to us nowadays is like nice or pleasant, you know. Oh, it's a wonderful day or... She's such a wonderful person. But the original meaning of wonderful is someone or something who inspires wonder and amazement. So it means something like awe-inspiring, amazing. This child is an awe-inspiring counsellor, one who is full of wisdom and who gives wise counsel. 
unlike other kings, he won't need a whole court full of advisors and counsellors because he has all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge in himself. And he's called the mighty God or the heroic God. How can a human child be called mighty God? I mean, we know this child is human because he was, he's going to be born in just like any other human child. Well, the only possible answer to that mystery, really, is the Christian answer of the incarnation in which God becomes a human without losing his godness. And notice that the doctrine of the incarnation is not just invented in the New Testament, it's already foreshadowed here in the Old Testament. He's called everlasting father. That's not saying that the child to be born is God the father, but he's a father figure to those who belong to him. He's eternally a father, and like all good fathers, he guards his children, he provides for them, he ensures that all their needs are met. And lastly, he's called prince of peace. And his rule will be very different uh, from any other human king. In Isaiah's time, and very much in our own day, kings and rulers attempt to project their greatness by showing their military power, by making war. But this prince does not make war, but establishes lasting peace. Verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So this child to be born will sit on the throne of David and rule over his kingdom. Now this calls to our mind a promise that God made to King David about 200 years before Isaiah's time. So I'll just put it up on the screen here. I'm having a bit of trouble with this today. Okay, 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I won't read all of it. But basically in this prophecy to David, we are told that there's going to be a king in the line of David on, on his throne forever. And that is a remarkable promise because we know that no royal dynasty lasts forever. Okay, the prophecy to David could indicate a succession of kings in his line, but in today's passage in Isaiah, we find that this covenant that God made to David will ultimately be fulfilled not in an unbroken succession of kings, but in one single king. He's going to be the final king in David's line of succession, and no one will succeed him because he will rule forever on David's throne. So who is this child that Isaiah foresaw? Who is this divine figure and who is this king? It's none other than Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. So we have this passage in Matthew's Gospel. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, and then quoted the passage that we just read today. Jesus is the Son of God, who bears all the divine titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. He is the Messiah, that is, he's the King in David's line, 
in fulfillment of God's promise to David, and he will rule on David's throne forever. His rule is a rule of peace, which will progress and increase forever. He will rule with justice and with righteousness. Now, one of God's uh, criticisms of um, Israel was the absence of justice and righteousness in their society. And so it is today in our society. We read of um, hidden corruption in gov- at government levels. We read of wrongdoers, especially people in high positions who get away with anything, who are not held to account, who are not brought to justice. And we hear all the time in the news of terrible, unrighteous deeds, people acting inhumanely against other people. Now, we can never expect justice and righteousness to come from sinners. The world will never reform itself. God has to act, and God has acted. He will bring a king who will one day rule in justice and righteousness, and it is by the zeal of the Lord of hosts that this is to come. It's by his own initiative and his power that all this is accomplished. So yes, we live in dark times, not as dark perhaps as many other times in history, but yes, the storm clouds are gathering, and into this darkness though, God shines his light. And this light is none other than Jesus. Isaiah's prophecy has already been fulfilled. Jesus has come to Galilee and displayed God's glory. We do not yet see the fulfillment of the entire prophecy. We don't yet see Jesus ruling on David's throne in justice and righteousness, stopping all wars and establishing peace. But the fulfillment of the rest of the prophecy which is the second coming of Jesus, is just as certain as how his first coming has already been fulfilled. And so we find ourselves in the same situation as Isaiah and his disciples who swam against the tide in their generation. We are called like them to hope in God, to fear God and not fear men, to wait for God. We are called to stand firm, and not compromise with the world's evil. We are called to seek guidance from God's word, and we are called to endure in faith to the very end. So let us be calm and assured, resting in the certainty of God's promises as we long for Jesus to return and bring God's eternal rule of justice and righteousness and peace. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, amidst the doom and gloom of our world, we thank you for the brightness of our hope. We thank you for Jesus, who will come to lift the darkness, to establish his kingdom of peace, who will stop all wars, who will rule in justice and righteousness with all wisdom and counsel. We look forward to this day, and as we wait for his coming, Please give us great confidence in your promise. Help us to wait, to continue trusting, to stand steadfast in faith. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.